Part One, Chapter Twenty One of the Fur Country. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fur Country by Jules Verne. Part One, Chapter Twenty One, The Large Polar Bears. The only one of the four windows through which it was possible to look into the court of the fort was that opening at the end of the entrance passage. The outside shutters had not been closed, but before it could be seen through it had to be washed with boiling water, as the panes were covered with a thick coating of ice. This was done several times a day by the lieutenant's orders, when the districts surrounding the fort were carefully examined, and the state of the sky and of the alcohol thermometer placed outside were accurately noted. On the 6th January, towards eleven o'clock in the morning, Killet, whose turn it was to look out, suddenly called the sergeant and pointed to some moving masses indistinctly visible in the gloom. Long, approaching the window, observed quietly, They are bears. In fact, half a dozen of these formidable animals had succeeded in getting over the palisades, and, attracted by the smoke from the chimneys, were advancing upon the house. On hearing of the approach of the bears, Hobson at once ordered the window of the passage to be barricaded inside. It was the only unprotected opening in the house, and when it was secured it appeared impossible for the bears to effect an entrance. The window was, therefore, quickly closed up with bars, which the carpenter MacNab wedged firmly in, leaving a narrow slit through which to watch the movements of the unwelcome visitors. Now, observed the head carpenter, these gentlemen can't get in without our permission, and we can have time to hold a council of war. Well, lieutenant, exclaimed Mrs. Barnett, nothing has been wanting to our northern winter. After the cold come the bears. Not after, replied the lieutenant, but, which is a serious matter, with the cold, and a cold so intense that we cannot venture outside. I really don't know how we shall get rid of those tiresome brutes. I suppose they will soon get tired of prowling about, said the lady, and return as they came. Hobson shook his head, as if he had his doubts. You don't know these animals, madam. They are famished with hunger, and will not go until we make them. Are you anxious, then? Yes and no, replied the lieutenant. I don't think the bears will get in. "'But neither do I see how we can get out, "'should it become necessary for us to do so.' "'With these words, Hobson turned to the window, "'and Mrs. Barnett joined the other women "'who had gathered round the sergeant "'and were listening to what he had to say about the bears. "'He spoke like a man well up in his subject, "'for he had had many an encounter "'with these formidable, carnivorous creatures, "'which are often met with even towards the south.' where, however, they can be safely attacked, whilst here the siege would be a regular blockade, for the cold would quite prevent any attempt at a sortie. Throughout the whole day the movements of the bears were attentively watched. Every now and then one of them would lay his great head against the window-pane, and an ominous growl was heard. The lieutenant and Sergeant Long took counsel together, and it was agreed that if their enemies showed no sign of beating a retreat, they would drill a few loopholes in the walls of the house and fire at them. But it was decided to put off this desperate measure for a day or two, as it was desirable to avoid giving access to the outer air. 
the inside temperature being already far too low. The walrus oil to be burnt was frozen so hard that it had to be broken up with hatchets. The day passed without any incident. The bears went and came, prowling round the house, but attempting no direct attack. Watch was kept all night, and at four o'clock in the morning they seemed to have left the court. At any rate they were nowhere to be seen. But about seven o'clock Marlborough went up to the loft to fetch some provisions, and on his return announced that the bears were walking about on the roof. Hobson, the sergeant, McNabb, and two or three soldiers seized their arms and rushed to the ladder in the passage, which communicated with the loft by a trap-door. The cold was, however, so intense in the loft that the men could not hold the barrels of their guns, and their breath froze as it left their lips, and floated about them as snow. Marlborough was right. The bears were all on the roof, and the sound of their feet and their growls could be distinctly heard. Their great claws caught in the lays of the roof beneath the ice, and there was some danger that they might have sufficient strength to tear away the woodwork. The lieutenant and his men, becoming giddy and faint from the intense cold, were soon obliged to go down, and Hobson announced the state of affairs in as hopeful a tone as he could assume. "'The bears,' he said, "'are now upon the roof. "'We ourselves have nothing to fear, "'as they can't get into our rooms. "'But they may force an entrance to the loft, "'and devour the furs stowed away there. "'Now these furs belong to the company, "'and it is our duty to preserve them from injury. "'I ask you then, my friends, "'to aid me in removing them to a place of safety.' "'All eagerly volunteered.' and relieving each other in parties of two or three, for none could have supported the intense severity of the cold for long at a time. They managed to carry all the furs into the large room in about an hour. Whilst the work was proceeding, the bears continued their efforts to get in, and tried to lift up the rafters of the roof. In some places the lays became broken by their weight, and poor MacNab was in despair. He had not reckoned upon such a contingency when he had constructed the roof, and expected to see it give way every moment. The day passed, however, without any change in the situation. The bears did not get in, but a no less formidable enemy, the cold, gradually penetrated into every room. The fires in the stoves burnt low. The fuel in reserve was almost exhausted, and before twelve o'clock the last piece of wood would be burnt and the genial warmth of the stove would no longer cheer the unhappy colonists. Death would then await them, death in its most fearful form, from cold. The poor creatures huddled together round the stove, felt that their own vital heat must soon become exhausted, but not a word of complaint passed their lips. The women bore their sufferings with the greatest heroism, and Mrs. MacNab pressed her baby convulsively to her ice-cold breast. Some of the soldiers slept, or rather were wrapped in a heavy tupor, which could scarcely be called sleep. At about three o'clock in the morning, Hobson consulted the thermometer hanging in the large room, about ten feet from the stove. It was marked four degrees Fahrenheit below zero. The lieutenant pressed his hand to his forehead, and looked mournfully at his silent companions without a word. His half-condensed breath shrouded his face in a white cloud, and he was standing rooted to the spot when a hand was laid upon his shoulder. 
he started and looked round to see Mrs. Barnett beside him. "'Something must be done, Lieutenant Hobson,' exclaimed the energetic woman. "'We cannot die like this without an effort to save ourselves.' "'Yes,' replied the lieutenant, feeling revived by the moral courage of his companion. "'Yes, something must be done.' And he called together Long, McNab, and Ray, the blacksmith, and the bravest men in his party. Altogether, with Mrs. Barnett, hastened to the window, and having washed the panes with boiling water, they consulted the thermometer outside. Seventy-two degrees!' cried Hobson. "'My friends, two courses are only open to us. We can risk our lives to get a fresh supply of fuel, or we can burn the benches, beds, partition walls, and everything in the house to feed our stoves for a few days longer. A desperate alternative, for the cold may last some time yet.' There is no sign of a change in the weather. "'Let us risk our lives to get fuel,' said Sergeant Long. All agreed that it would be the best course, and without another word each one set to work to prepare for the emergency. The following were the precautions taken to save the lives of those who were about to risk themselves for the sake of the general good. The shed in which the wood was stored was about fifty steps on the left, behind the principal house. It was decided that one of the men should try and run to the shed. He was to take one rope, wound round his body, and to carry another in his hand, one end of which was to be held by one of his comrades. Once in the shed, he was to load one of the sledges there with fuel, and tie the rope to the front, and the other to the back of the vehicle, so that it could be dragged backwards and forwards between the house and the shed without much danger. A tug, violently shaking one or the other cord, would be the signal that the sledge was filled with fuel at the shed or unloaded at the house. A very clever plan, certainly, but two things might defeat it. The door of the shed might be so blocked up with ice that it would be very difficult to open it, or the bears might come down from the roof and prowl about the court. Two risks to be run. Long, McNabb, and Ray all three volunteered for the perilous service but the sergeant reminded the other two that they were married and insisted upon being the first to venture when the lieutenant expressed a wish to go himself mrs barnett said earnestly you are a chief you have no right to expose yourself let sergeant long go hobson could not but realize that his office imposed caution and being called upon to decide which of his companions should go he chose the sergeant mrs barnett pressed the brave man's hand with ill-concealed emotion and the rest of the colonists asleep or stupefied knew nothing of the attempt about to be made to save their lives two long ropes were got ready the sergeant wound one round his body above the warm furs worth some thousand pounds sterling, in which he was encased, and tied the other to his belt, on which he hung a tinder-box and a loaded revolver. Just before starting, he swallowed down half a glass of rum, as he said to himself, to ensure a good load of wood. Hobson, Ray, and McNabb accompanied the brave fellow through the kitchen, where the fire had just gone out, and into the passage. Ray climbed up to the trap-door of the loft, and peeping through it, made sure that the bears were still on the roof. The moment for action had arrived. One door of the passage was open, and in spite of the thick furs in which they were wrapped, 
all felt chilled to the very marrow of their bones. And when the second door was pushed open, they recoiled for an instant, panting for breath, whilst the moisture, held in suspension in the air of the passage, covered the walls and the floor with fine snow. The weather outside was extremely dry, and the stars shone with extraordinary brilliancy. Sergeant Long rushed out without a moment's hesitation, dragging the cord behind him, one end of which was held by his companions. The outer door was pushed to, and Hobson, McNabb, and Ray went back to the passage and closed the second door, behind which they waited. If Long did not return in a few minutes, they might conclude that his enterprise had succeeded, and that, safe in the shed, he was loading the first train with fuel. Ten minutes at the most ought to suffice for this operation, if he had been able to get the door open. When the sergeant was fairly off, Hobson and McNabb walked together towards the end of the passage. Meanwhile, Ray had been watching the bears in the loft. It was so dark that all hoped Long's movements would escape the notice of the hungry animals. Ten minutes elapsed, and the three watchers went back to the narrow space between the two doors, waiting for the signal to be given to drag in the sledge. Five minutes more, the cord remained motionless in their hands. Their anxiety can be imagined. It was a quarter of an hour since the sergeant had started, plenty of time for all he had to do, and he had given no signal. Hobson waited a few minutes longer, and then, tightening his hold of the end of the rope, he made a sign to his companions to pull with him. If the load of wood were not quite ready, the sergeant could easily stop it from being dragged away. The rope was pulled vigorously. A heavy object seemed to slide along the snow. In a few moments it reached the outer door. It was the body of the sergeant with the rope round his waist. Poor Long had never reached the shed. He had fallen fainting to the ground, and after twenty minutes' exposure, to such a temperature there was little hope that he would revive. A cry of grief and despair burst from the lips of McNabb and Ray. They lifted their unhappy comrade from the ground, and carried him into the passage. But as the lieutenant was closing the outer door, something pushed violently against it, and a horrible growl was heard. "'Help!' cried Hobson. McNabb and Ray rushed to their officer's assistance, but Mrs. Barnett had been beforehand with them and was struggling with all her strength to help Hobson to close the door. In vain the monstrous brute, throwing the whole weight of its body against it, would force its way into the passage in another moment. Mrs. Barnett, whose presence of mind did not forsake her now, seized one of the pistols in the lieutenant's belt and waited quietly until the animal shoved its head between the door and the wall, discharged the contents into its open mouth. The bear fell backwards, mortally wounded, no doubt, and the door was shut and securely fastened. The body of the sergeant was then carried into the large room, but alas, the fire was dying out. How was it possible to restore the vital heat with no means of obtaining warmth? "'I will go, I will go and fetch some wood,' cried the blacksmith Ray. "'Yes, Ray, we will go together,' exclaimed Mrs. Barnett, whose courage was unabated. "'No, my friends, no,' cried Hobson. "'You will fall victims to the cold, or the bears, or both. "'Let us burn all there is to burn in the house, 
and leave the rest to God. And the poor half-frozen settlers rose and laid about them with their hatchets like madmen. Benches, tables, and partition walls were thrown down, broken up, crushed to pieces, and piled up in the stove of the large room and kitchen furnace. Very soon good fires were burning, on which a few drops of walrus oil were poured, so that the temperature of the rooms quickly rose a dozen degrees. Every effort was made to restore the sergeant. He was rubbed with warm rum, and gradually the circulation of his blood was restored. The white blotches, with which parts of his body were covered, began to disappear. But he had suffered dreadfully, and several hours elapsed before he could articulate a word. He was laid in a warm bed, and Mrs. Barnett and Madge watched by him until the next morning. Meanwhile, Hobson, McNabb, and Ray consulted how best to escape from their terrible situation. It was impossible to shut their eyes to the fact that in two days this fresh supply of fuel would be exhausted, and then, if the cold continued, what would become of them all? The new moon had risen forty-eight hours ago, and there was no sign of a change in the weather. The north wind still swept the face of the country with its icy breath. The barometer remained at fine dry weather, and there was not a vapour to be seen above the endless succession of ice-fields. There was reason to fear that the intense cold would last a long time yet, but what was to be done? Would it do to try once more to get to the woodshed when the bears had been roused by the shot and rendered doubly dangerous? Would it be possible to attack these dreadful creatures in the open air? No, it would be madness and certain death for all. Fortunately, the temperature of the rooms had now become more bearable, and in the morning Mrs. Joliffe served up a breakfast of hot meat and tea. Hot grog was served out, and the brave sergeant was able to take his share. The heat from the stoves warmed the bodies and reanimated the drooping courage of the poor colonists, who were now ready to attack the bears at a word from Hobson. But the lieutenant, thinking the forces unequally matched, would not risk the attempt, and it appeared likely that the day would pass without any incident worthy of note, when at about three o'clock in the afternoon a great noise was heard on the top of the house. "'There they are!' cried two or three soldiers, hastily arming themselves with hatchets and pistols. It was evident that the bears had torn away one of the rafters of the roof, and got into the loft. "'Let every one remain where he is!' cried the lieutenant. "'Ray, the trap!' The blacksmith rushed into the passage, scaled the ladder, and shut and securely fastened the trap-door. A dreadful noise was now heard, growling, stamping of feet, and tearing of claws. It was doubtful whether the danger of the anxious listeners was increased, or the reverse. Some were of the opinion that if all the bears were in the loft it would be easier to attack them. They would be less formidable in a narrow space, and there would not be the same risk of suffocation from cold. Of course, a conflict with such fierce creatures must still be very perilous, but it no longer appeared so desperate as before. It was now debated whether it would be better to go and attack the besiegers, or to remain on the defensive. Only one soldier could get through the narrow trap-door at a time, 
and this made Hobson hesitate, and finally resolve to wait. The sergeant and others, whose bravery none could doubt, agreed that he was in the right, and it might be possible that some new incident would occur to modify the situation. It was almost impossible for the bears to break through the beams of the ceiling, as they had the rafters of the roof, so that there was little fear that they would get on to the ground floor. The day passed by in anxious expectation, and at night no one could sleep for the uproar made by the furious beasts. The next day, about nine o'clock, a fresh complication compelled Hobson to take active steps. He knew that the pipes of the stove and kitchen furnace ran all along the loft, and being made of lime bricks, but imperfectly cemented together, they could not resist great pressure for any length of time. Now some of the bears scratched at the masonry, while others leant against the pipes for the sake of the warmth from the stove, so that the bricks began to give way, and soon the stoves and furnace ceased to draw. This really was an irreparable misfortune, which would have disheartened less energetic men, but things were not yet at their worst. While the fire became lower and lower, a thick, nauseous, acrid smoke filled the house. The pipes were broken, and the smoke soon became so thick that the lamps went out. Hobson now saw that he must leave the house if he wished to escape suffocation. But to leave the house would be to perish with cold. At this fresh misfortune, some of the women screamed, and Hobson, seizing a hatchet, shouted in a loud voice, "'To the bears! To the bears, my friends!' It was the forlorn hope. These terrible creatures must be destroyed. All rushed into the passage and made for the ladder, Hobson leading the way. The trap-door was opened, and a few shots were fired into the black whirlpool of smoke. Mingled howls and screams were heard, and blood began to flow on both sides. But the fearful conflict was waged in profound darkness. In the midst of the melee, a terrible rumbling sound suddenly drowned the tumult. The ground became violently agitated, and the house rocked, as if it were being torn up from its foundations. The beams of the walls separated, and through the openings Hobson and his companions saw the terrified bears rushing away into the darkness, howling with rage and fright. End of chapter 21